This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And today's episode is brought to you by New Microphone Sands, which you can't see because this is an audio-only podcast, but we have set them up in our individual homes. So if later in the podcast you hear a loud crash followed by an unbroken stream of profanity, it means we either knocked them over or didn't set them up correctly and decided the end result was far too humorous to delete from the final recording. (laughs) Yeah, I think we pretty much covered the falling over, crashing, and cursing part yesterday when we were setting up the stands. There was a lot of profanity involved then. There was a lot of profanity involved when I made my first solo attempt, and, I, and I'm and i proud of myself that it did not culminate in an angry text message to our wonderful sound designer, Brandon Griffith, who picked these microphone stands out for us, because that would have been, let's say, misplaced anger, given that it was my complete absence of a functional sense of accurate spatial relationships that was leading to my inability to make the microphone stand stand up correctly. And I have to say, Eric Shaw Quinn, you totally figured it out in like two seconds. But I don't remember, were there any instructions? I think it was, no, I think that may think have they... been part of the challenge was like, okay, guess how this works. Maybe there was, there was that pasteboard box part around the like you know what i i can't imagine this is interesting for people who tuned into the <laughs> this podcast is, this is the warm-up you know what's actually way more interesting i had sort of prepared that little bit and then we we connected up on facetime which is part of how we do these remote recordings you are having a really great bangs day and i'm really sad that the people at home cannot see the jauntiness of your bangs today it's like you've tied your have you tied your hair back in a ponytail is that yeah, what's it's going a on? scrunchy day it's a scrunchy oh. day it's been 500 years since I've been. You should get there soon. Um, Jesus, I know. It's been mm-hmm. 500 years since I uh, had my hairs did. So um, for, you know, reasons that shall go unmentioned. <laughs> yeah, no, we were the, that secret pandemic that we're all still living through. Right, that we we're trying this. not to bring up and talk about. Um, but yeah, so today I was like a scrunchy day because the, uh, the earbuds are really my new challenge, my great discovery in uh, doing the remote recordings of the podcast has been earbuds. Yes. But the combination of earbuds and a great deal of hair are earbuds popping out all the time. And I'm hoping that we can avoid that this week with um, scrunchy gate. Yes. Scrunchy gate. And, we'll and now see. we've had to adjust our case. Really, we only use FaceTime so that we can hear each other and then we splice our individual sound recordings together. So we don't necessarily, it's not about seeing each other, but right now I can only see you from your eyes up. So you're like a talking set of Uh-oh. bangs with your television. You don't have to adjust. It's fine. There's your there's your beautiful smile, Eric Shaw. There it is. Just, 
No, I, I was I was demonstrating how I'd set up my uh, microphone to Brandon, and I moved the face, the iPad. Yes. Again, okay. more fascinating stuff for people at home <laughs> who can't see any of this. We should have done this before we got on the air, but it's too late now. It's too late. Raw, unfiltered, full of the very banter that makes most people turn off podcasts within the first three minutes. We like to give you a whole lot of it right up front. I am going to break a cardinal rule here at TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Well, there was a. this will not be a breaking news story by the time this podcast makes its way to our party people, but did you see that Chadwick Boseman died? Oh, yes. Isn't that tragic? Just Such so a young sad. man and so talented. My God, what a loss. Yeah, really tragic. Years old. Yeah. 43 years old and dead of colon cancer. That was what knocked me yeah. flat. I thought, wow. Really, just... really tragic. And in the middle of it, this in kind of incredible moment, I mean, the first black superhero in a major franchise motion picture. I mean, he was Black Panther. I, I I haven't kept up with the Avengers series. I don't know where Black Panther is now, but I'm assuming that he's going to have to be replaced. And I, it's just awful to have that moment sort of ripped away from you when you're in the middle of it. I, yeah, I just, I, there, there's so many aspects of the tragedy and he, he was quite the actor. He had done some pretty remarkable things playing Jackie Robinson and right. Uh, what, uh, I feel good. What's his name? <laughs> uh, did he play James Brown? I think so. Yeah, he was yeah. really remarkable actor, and, and he was incredible. And, and he was doing these movies in between chemo treatments and surgeries, which oh, he's he's been fighting cancer for four years. And I always and was in I hear fantastic story. shape. So yeah, astonishing uh, achievement all around. And I hear stories like that and think, as my mother once famously said of a relative who was undergoing chemotherapy, she's held up so well and I lie down and have a panic attack whenever I have a sinus infection. You know, like it really puts a perspective on your own your own issues and, and in some cases our own hypochondria. I, wow. I mean, I just I just thought it was so sad. I just it's such a loss. And apparently also part of there are younger and younger colon cancer deaths happening which is something that medical professionals are looking into what is that about they've lowered the ages for those incredibly horrible and invasive screenings that all of us have to go through but which can be an absolute lifesaver so and i will say this i i um spoke to my doctor once and i said i don't i don't i know a lot about fringe science and 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 trends and things you read on the internet what is the solid, reliable science that you're aware of around cancer and diet? What is, um, what would you recommend? And he said, really, the only strong numbers that I'm in support of are that fiber intake is connected to a lower incidence of colon cancer. So if you are consistent, if you take a fiber supplement or if you, you eat a high fiber diet, we have seen definite a definite positive connection between those two things. So, and I think also the uh, getting children vaccinated against the HPV virus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was uh, the the vaccine was not covered for older people, but I I paid for it. I was able to get the vaccine and request it through my through my doctor. Now I think that you know the 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 reason they give it to younger people is because there's there's kind of a guarantee that they've not been exposed to the virus and the One older hopes, and yes. more active you've been. So anyway, just I just thought that was really sad. I wanted to just take a moment to to mark that loss. 
that is not the topic of today's show. I'm I'm calling the topic of today's show Eric's interesting journey with an HBO documentary series called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, we first talked about this a few episodes ago, and I would say we brought it up in a slightly different context than we're going to talk about it today. If you're not familiar with this story, the documentary series, all the episodes are now up and available on HBO Max to stream. It was an HBO series. Uh, this is the story of a writer named Michelle McNamara, who was married to the actor and comedian Patton Oswalt, and she became incredibly obsessed with what was then called uh, the original Night Stalker case, as well as the case of the East well, Area she was Rapist. A, she was a true crime blogger. Yes, absolutely. She, had, she, she had, had already begun and had a, I don't know, I guess her own podcast, but she was definitely blogging about about true crime anyway. Yes, she was Absolutely. already involved. It was already sort of her thing. And then she came across the the East Area Rapist or whatever he was, whatever she originally discovered, right? Yes. And what what's not clear to me is at what moment in history the crimes of the East Area Rapist were connected up with the murders of the killer they called the original Night Stalker. I know that what happened in the course of it is that this was an individual who started out doing home invasions, prowlings and rapes he would target often married couples he would incapacitate the husband tie him up and then violate the wife in the other room it was terrible crimes and then sometime i think around either the late 70s or the early 80s he graduated to murder the home invasions and rapes culminated in the murders of several married couples and a and a individual woman down in orange county and at some point somebody connected up these two criminals that the unsolved east area rapes in sacramento which is more sort of northern and central california were connected to these murders in orange county by the time she arrived at the case or began investigating it i think that connection had already been made but i'm not exactly i think sure. that they became connected as a result of the beginnings of dna mm-hmm. testing they mm-hmm. they were able to see that it was the same dna for both the, in both cases, because they had DNA samples, but it was the early days, and so it didn't connect them to any particular individual, but it did connect the crimes. Right, absolutely. They were able to, from the Orange County samples, connect to the East, the Sacramento samples, and then eventually also some of the other ones, Santa Barbara and... Uh, Maybe even the the ransacker. I, I can't remember if there was DNA involved. That's right. There was also the Visalia ransacker. And Visalia, right. if you don't know, is a town in Central California, south of Sacramento. This was the second case I've I, I've read about recently or watched a documentary about recently, where the killer I think actively took advantage of what he knew would be jurisdictional difficulties for law enforcement. That that uh, up until recently different law enforcement agencies, different local law enforcement agencies didn't have the best record when it came to cooperation and sharing evidence. Well, and spoiler alert, and I think with what given recent court proceedings, I don't think it's much of a spoiler alert. Um, he was a policeman, right? Like, Absolutely. so he was actually well-informed in terms of the way in which crimes were investigated and, I would think well suited, um, well positioned to take advantage of that mm-hmm. um, as he planned and executed his own crimes, his own crime spree. Absolutely. 
but all of that is sort of the basics of the case. I think what I was was uh, was leading to is what you pointed out the last time we discussed this was that Michelle McNamara really came up with the name the Golden State Killer, which is how most people know this individual now. His real name is Joseph D'Angelo. He has since pleaded guilty to many of these crimes um, in a courtroom drama that has unfolded during this COVID nineteen pandemic. So for all of history, that you will yeah, see just a killer in, like in a mask. This, this week, he was finally yeah. sentenced, wasn't he? Maybe yes, last he was week. finally sentenced, yeah. And his victims had the chance to stand up and give statements in his presence. Um, Billy Jensen, who was one of the writers who ultimately, spoiler alert, finished Michelle McNamara's book on the case because she died before finishing it, which I think is something we're going to talk about, the circumstances around that. Billy Jensen and Paul Holes, who is a DNA scientist who was also pivotal to the case, they have their own podcast. And recently, Paul Holes traveled up to one of these court proceedings to sort of be a witness. And I think what he said is that the... The golden Joseph D'Angelo is now sort of pretending to be out of it, to sort of pretend like he has dementia so that he's not really present for what's being said to him about his crimes. It's like he's kind of trying to deny the victims, not necessarily their day in court, but their opportunity to be heard. You know, he's pretending. So whatever to that. Um, yeah. A monster till the very end. We brought it up last time in an episode where you and I ended up talking about uh, cases that obsessed us, you know, unsolved cases or cases in which there was very little information. I talked about the unsolved murder of a gay adult video performer named William Newton, which we have touched on on our social media page. Not really necessarily going to get into that today, but we will be revisiting that in October when it's the 30th anniversary of the case. You talked about a kidnapping case that was sort of sketchily reported in the 90s but today when you reached the end of this series we hadn't watched the whole thing when we talked about it before no i think i'd we'd i'd only watched one episode when we talked about it the last time you arrived in a very different place with it so i guess that's why i want to talk about eric's journey with i'll be gone in the dark because you had a lot of thoughts and and reactions that i thought were interesting and so now I'm supposed to tell you what they are. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to kick back. I'm going to put my feet up, have some of these pita chips as I mute my microphone. <laughs> when I was don't, about Don't leave out your final thoughts. Never forget When your final I was thoughts. about 12 years old, I was cast um, as the lead in a musical called Captain Billy by a children's theater company called the uh, children's theater workshop or something workshop theater no that wasn't it that the creative factory that was the name of it workshop theater was something i did later um the creative factory and um one of the thi- in beautiful columbia south carolina the capital of south carolina um and i was on the cover of a magazine the key to Ooh, columbia and the key to um, columbia in my in my spacesuit and um we did the tour of the morning talk shows and we went to, um, I don't think it was called, I think it was just called the Ann Cobb show. Second cup of coffee was on channel 19, but on WOLO, W-O-L-O, the ABC affiliate, um, which was filmed in a Quonset hut up on Shakespeare road. Um, that was 
that had been converted into the television studio. And it was really funny. It was just a cement floor and just in different places around the room were the sets for everything, the news, mm. and and they would just spin the camera around in the middle of the room um, mm-hmm. so that they could film. So we were on the Ancomp show, which was like a folding screen and a piece of shag carpeting and a couple of chairs and a little table um, that looked like the 70s, uh, chrome and pleather. Anyway, um, we went on the show and Ann Cobb, in her big old beehive hairdo, introduced us and said, set up the show and then asked us some big question and the camera turned to us and then she just got up and left. She went off and got <laughs> coffee and did other stuff and it was our show to talk about whatever we wanted to. It was a little terrifying because they didn't really warn us that that was going to happen, but it was all on us to do the show. Um, I think there was more than coffee on that table that Ann wanted. I think there know, was a hot toddy over there she was maybe trying to Maybe so. And good for her if there was. She was lovely. She wasn't unpleasant. It was just really startling and it reminded me a bit of the uh sort of the uh we're uh, and so now i'd like to turn it over to eric for his thoughts I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. I just want to put an X in the air around this. I'm pu- I'm totally fine to keep talking about I'll Be Gone in the Dark today and Michelle McNamara, but I also think we should maybe do a podcast series about your days in local television in South Carolina because there's a lot of gold there. There really is. I mean, the Ann Cobb story is just one of one of many that I have been blessed with over the years. You actually worked in local television for years. Yes. You were the theater critic. I I was, I was, I had backstage with Eric Shaw Quinn. I was on the NBC affiliate there and I actually auditioned. Captain Billy caught the eye of one of the local TV executives and I auditioned to be the Saturday morning kids host of the cartoons for, um, for, for, for one of the shows. And the, the guy got fired before the cat, the casting happened and it never, Damn nobody it. ever played the part, but I could have been, um, on TV even sooner because there was, you know, like a lot of personality to uh, a lot of personality. even then. Um, uh, I had a friend who, as a little girl, went on a children's show, local children's show in Louisiana called Popeye and Friends, where they would uh, roll cartoons and they had actual kids on the set, which is always uh-huh. really dangerous. And <laughs> the, it was sponsored by Popeye's Chicken. So you would they would bring fried chicken out for the children and you would watch How cartoons. Great. To which she responded, do you have anything besides chicken? (laughs) Good for her. That's the life that would have been waiting for you if you had gone into children's programming. Okay, enough of all that tomfoolery. Let's hear what you have to say about Michelle McNamara and I'll Be Gone in the Dark. 
Yeah, I ended up teaching puppetry in children, on children's television. Anyway, a lot of stories. So many. A lot of personalities. So many different things. So many different uh, performance opportunities. But yes, the the, uh, the the it was an interesting experience watching that series. It was, I would, initially was a little baffled by their choices. But what became apparent over watching the show was that in writing the book, one of the things that the publisher had wanted, and maybe it was a hallmark of her blog, I've never read that, was that there be a lot of Michelle in the book itself. That it was not just about the investigation or the story, it was also about her process. Right. Um, in, in pursuing it, and that really turned out to be an interesting st- her process because ultimately part of her process caused her death. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it made it a, a, another part of the story. But initially when I started watching, it was like, what story are they telling? Is this going to be about this true crime story or is this going to be about her? What is this really about? And then as the story unfolded, it became really quite fascinating. You know, she and and I really want to give points to um, Patton Oswald and uh, and to Michelle's family for their fearlessness and honesty um, in covering the story. Because yeah, ultimately, me, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in with it because I, I had followed the story of her and her death and, and her research into the case from a distance. And there was it was always presented like this. She died in her sleep while working obsessively on research for this book, and she was using prescription Xanax, and she had an undiagnosed heart condition. And I read that, and I thought, it sounds like there were some pretty serious addiction issues that whoever has put this article together does not want to talk about or does not want to address very directly. And having, having you know, experienced addiction issues, it's sort of like I'm in favor of a less shameful approach to that, yes. that pressing medical issue. Absolutely. It's something that should be talked about. Yeah. And then. And I mean, they just took the gloves off. They were really. They they were very frank about it. They they made it clear in no uncertain terms that that the heart condition had absolutely nothing to do with her death and that the the drug, the drug addiction was really much more extensive than anybody realized. And um, it was illicit as well as prescription based and that right. it was fentanyl. It was definitely, mm-hmm. it was fentanyl that, um, that killed her. Um, mm-hmm. and they didn't, they didn't necessarily talk about their feelings about that other than the fact that they just simply didn't know and wished that they had and had reached out to her more or had been more help. But the thing that really ultimately, the thing that we were talking about in planning today's show was, talking about the nature of addictive behavior and obsession as it Mm -hmm. relates to what it is we do. Right. You know, ultimately like my own addictive nature is one of the things that is instrumental in my writing career. Right. Or, and most of my artistic endeavor, it is, it is about once I get focused on a thing That's really all I can do. Getting started in the morning, as I always say, is the hardest part. But once I'm writing, woe Mm -hmm. betide you if you try and stop me. Mm -hmm. You know, I I always tell that story to my friends about 
the three-piece bistro set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got up one morning um, to start my day and was beginning, and there was some little sale paper, I believe, from CVS Pharmacy, and they had on sale a three-piece bistro set, which is a little ice cream table and two little chairs. And I thought, hmm, I should have a three-piece bistro set um, for my balcony. And eight hours later or so, I was still in my pajamas. I hadn't shaved. I hadn't eaten breakfast yet. Hadn't gotten any writing done. But I had bookmarked like 4,000 pages of three-piece bistro sets. There used to be, there, there was at the time, even threepiecebistroset.com, um, which I had found. I would found a number of candidates for the most ideal possible uh, bistro set. And, uh, and, and then I realized that I'd lost my entire Tuesday to this obsession. That's kind of how my mind works. Once I'm on something, you know, the research, research is a great, oh, um, oh Oh, my God, I can so be lost in the world of research, Mm -hmm. um, so Mm -hmm. easily. I, 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 the, the, the one that's the, the most fun is the, uh. Is the when the when I was writing the Prince of Psalm and I had been researching for two years, and it was like, well, I should probably read the Pentateuch, and I was like, okay, yeah, 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 <laughs> I got to draw a line. I got to draw. That's when research right. becomes procrastination. But uh, the thing that's in, intriguing me about what you're saying is, what did obsessions like this look like before the age of the internet? You know, because that was very present. What Michelle McNamara was doing was going into her room alone and was apparently abusing dangerous substances but she was also tunneling into an internet research wormhole related to this unsolved hideous serial killing case and i can so see would it would she have been at as much danger from her vices if she'd been at the library right if she'd had to go i mean maybe she could have brought a stack of books into her bedroom and it would have had the same effect but could you have looked at if you had had to go to the three piece bistro store would they have let you stay there for 8 hours in your pajamas while you <laughs> took polaroids of each subsequent set i i i got to say i i think the inter- i've always said that the internet is the greatest gift that writers ever got because mm-hmm. what used to be an all day affair to find out one fact you know, get up, go to the library, look it up, research it, read the book. Couldn't just search through the book. You had to actually read the whole book to find the thing that you wanted to, and then go back home and then put it in your book and write for another 20 minutes until you got to the next thing you had to discover, or you had to do all the research in advance. The, the, The ad hoc nature of being able to do research as you come across things you don't know is a wonderful gift to writers, but the but to obsessive personalities, what a quagmire mm-hmm. um, the internet can be, or social media. Right. Oh, <laughs> and that was that has been my struggle. Social media obsession has been my struggle for, I would say, the past several years. And only recently did I put myself on a strict social media diet. I go on there in a scheduled, strategic way, mostly to interact with our wonderful party people on our Facebook page for this show, The Dinner Party Show's Facebook As page. As you should. As we should, but for in a focused way, in a meaningful way, I was doing something they now call doom scrolling. 
got worse when the pandemic started. But, you know, I was looking for that one piece of hopeful, uplifting news about this ongoing disaster that we're living through. And instead, I was just finding slightly different and retooled versions of the same upsetting news over and over and over right. and over again. Of course. And then before that, it was the compare and despair of looking at curated social media images of, of, of people who seem to be consistently happy and consistently perfect in their two-dimensional version, at least. And arriving at those images and moments in my day where I was feeling maybe put out or lonely or grumpy or all that sort of stuff. And I just said, this is not, this is not nourishing me. This is not feeding me. And I, you know, after some freakouts over some really insignificant and insubstantial things that I had come across on the I'll internet say. that got blown way out of proportion, which I called Eric about, you know, I, I decided to dial back. And on one day in particular, and this sort of relates in a tangential way to the shirt that I'm currently wearing, which nobody can see. But I, I called you. I was pissed off about something Including negative somebody me. had said to me. <laughs> um, I, I will stand up and hold on. Can I, I'm getting Just it on the Just tell face us what time. it is. Well, this it's, it's Bigfoot, but you got to give me a minute to get there because it doesn't okay. start in Bigfoot land. I said, you said, if we're sheltering at home, we're spending extended periods of time in isolation. This is something that we as writers kind of already do. So we're, we're, totally. we have the skills. So this may be something I would have had to do pandemic or not. And you said, you got to park your brain somewhere positive. You got to get obsessed with something positive. That's the only three way piece to bistro shift gears. Yeah, three-piece bistro set. So what was my three-piece bistro set? And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what is this something I have a consistently positive association with? And it's San Francisco. I spent the first 10 years of my life in San Francisco. I did not want to leave when we moved. It was really sad for me. I have enjoyed and loved going back and visiting as a grown-up. I have friends there, old friends there, connected to parts of my past. And I have not this too really challenging. positive association with something there that most people hate, which is Sutro Tower. <laughs> <laughs> it's this giant, monstrous, uh, I think it's just a television tower. I don't I think it's think a TV it, tower, yeah. I think it's a TV tower. It sits on top of Twin Peaks. It was hugely controversial when they first built it, but it blasted TV signals all over the Bay Area to places where they couldn't reach. And we lived in the Castro District when I lived there, and I... Um, it was like the lighthouse, right? You look, it was always watching over us. It just, it was, it's this warm image. So I was like, I'm going to try to get a bunch of items that have Sutro Tower on them. And so I thought this was really going to be an undertaking. Well, I found these websites, Redbubble and Zazzle. You are not alone. I am not alone, but you can really find almost anything on a t-shirt. The individual artists will license their work to these sites. I guess it's a licensing agreement. I'm not really sure. And then they will, you can buy their stuff on t-shirts. I mean, there are a lot of people who feel about Sutro Tower the way I do. So the bad news of that is that it wasn't, there, the, the the investigation didn't require enough of my time to be a multi-day obsession, but I do continuously have have like shipments of Sutro Tower T-shirts arriving at my home, and I forget <laughs> what the, they're coming. But a really long way of saying uh, wh or what I was going to ask you, but you kind of arrived at that point on your own, which is how do you get out of the dark obsessions? How do you switch gears? Like because that's really I think the assumption that Michelle. That Michelle McNamara is the one who's now gone in the dark. I mean, it's a tragic repurposing of that phrase. That was actually something the Golden State Killer said to one of his rape victims. If you scream, 
I'll kill you and then I'll be gone in the dark. And in a way, there's a sense that Michelle was kind of lost to the darkness of this obsession, which given given the it contributions... Really over- it overwhelmed her, yeah. Given the contributions she made to the case, I mean, she was the person who pointed them towards these new, um, I don't even know what you call them, ancestry websites <gasps> where people spit yeah, in the tube it, and... Me and 23 or whatever it's called. Right. And she um, said... Yeah. That, yeah. She was the one who originally said she was talking about her own experience. The thing that she brought to the case beyond just her obsessive um, research around it was um, the out of the box thinking of an armchair detective. She didn't follow police procedure. She said like one of the things she did was look for what he would steal little memento items from his victims. And so she started looking for those items on eBay, mm-hmm. which the the police hadn't thought to do. Like, I don't know that it ever led anywhere productive, but it was the kind of thinking. And she had done, somebody had given them a 23 and me or whatever it's called, uh, an ancestry DNA kit. And mm-hmm. they had done it. And she said every couple of weeks, they, we get more information, more and more information. And she says, I have to believe that if we did this with the DNA from the Golden State Killer, we would we would have to find a relative of his. And ultimately, that's how they caught him. Right. And, and the more information she was getting is she was being told by the website, more people with the same DNA sequences as you are sending in their samples. You are related to more people than you realize. Right. And, and yeah, absolutely. It was it was fascinating what she did and what she contributed and what she unfortunately didn't live to see. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Uh, You touched on the bravery of Patton Oswalt and how he... I was just so impressed. Yeah, and because, I mean, the documentary lays out how this was a man who was really a husband who was giving his wife the space that he thought she needed to tunnel into this case to get this book done, particularly once she got the book deal. That was what she was doing. He just was not aware of the process in its entirety. The Mm -hmm. thing that Patton said that, that really chilled me and struck me the most powerfully um, in the whole thing. And there's lots of him interviewing it because Ultimately, he and a couple the other two writers, um, Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes, yes, Billy right, Jensen and um, Paul Haynes, I, I came together to both write, finish the book itself, and bring it out collectively. It was an instant bestseller. They were actually on the road, I think, doing the the launch event for the mm-hmm. book the night that they caught him, the night mm-hmm. that they caught the guy. Um, so it became it was in, integral to the um, the reawakening of interest in the case, 
the bringing the different elements of the research together and producing the result that was ultimately, you know, in large measure due to Michelle's obsessive research and um, really remarkable out-of-the-box thinking about the way in which to investigate and put the crime together. Anyway, so Patton was very much involved, and he said it was, you know, the, the, the last thing he could do for his wife was to put this book, you know, one last th- way in which he could take care of her was to see that her book, shepherd her book on into publication. And the publisher became involved. It, it became a very much a team effort. Anyway, so there was a lot of Patton in, in, the, uh, in the show because obviously Michelle wasn't at all. And there's six episodes and she's gone by episode four. So there's a lot um, that Patton carries as the, as the show progresses. And at one point, I remember him turning to the camera and saying, grief will let you know when it is done with you. And I mm. thought, wow. wow, you know, I really, because he was dealing with the revelation of finding out that, you know, they have a child together that she was mm-hmm. there looking after their child while he was on the road being a comedian or whatever, doing fentanyl and researching mm-hmm. whatchamacallit in the, in the night. They, he has to have had a tremendous amount of feeling in and around both positive and negative in and around um, this tragedy of losing his wife. And he still, it is so tempting to do the whitewash. You know, I, mm-hmm. the, that uh, Johnny Cash movie, walk the line or the, mm-hmm. the Ray movie, um, the, the Ray Charles movie. Both of them were great films with wonderful performances by amazing actors. And both of them were total whitewashes of those characters. The the Ray Charles notion of like, well, I just decided not to be a heroin addict anymore. And then that was the end of that mm-hmm. was like, that's so misses the story. And for Patton to have the bravery and her family to have mm-hmm. the bravery and the honesty to just lay it out there and say, this is the truth of what happened to this beloved person of ours you know, I, yeah. the, the reason I think those biopics have to do the thing that they do, particularly with music, is they want the rights right. for the songs that are going to sell the movie. And so the family is not really into, you know, airing out the dirty laundry. And Patton really didn't pull any punches. He didn't necessarily do it himself, but he didn't have it edited out. Yeah. And I think there's often, as, as you and I talk about frequently, a reckless idea that emerges in the biopic examples that that you just used, where particularly when it comes to the subject of addiction, which is the love of a good spouse will heal you of your addiction. Ugh. And anybody who's ever really got in there and dealt with an active addict or someone who's suffering from these issues knows that that is just not true it is a much more and it's also a really dangerous and destructive thing to tell people because then people really do feel like they're personally going to take it on imagine a movie saying you know the love of your spouse will cure your cancer right and then your spouse feeling responsible because you die of your cancer like oh well then i didn't love him enough or take care of him enough and that's just completely untrue That is just, it certainly is great to have support for that sort of thing, but ultimately it is a very personal decision and quest to recover from any sort of addictive behavior. I think one of the more heartbreaking moments around this particular topic in the special was the interview with her 
fellow citizen detective, a woman named Melanie Barbo, who was a social worker in the Sacramento area, who, upon hearing of Michelle's death and the circumstances of her death, said, I had absolutely no idea she was dealing with these issues privately, and I had actually dealt with these issues in my past. I'd had a surgery, I had become addicted to medication, and if I had known, I could have opened up to her and shared my experience with her because that is the thing that is recommended for people dealing yes. with addiction is they they are open to the thoughts, ideas, and experiences of other addicts and people who actually have direct experience. It's the same thing with veterans who, who are going through PTSD. They want to hear from other veterans. They don't want to hear from a psychiatrist who's never been in combat. So right. that was that was a heartbreaking kind of lost opportunity because I think she probably, she might have been able to make a real difference if she had known. But at the same time, nobody knew. All these people working very closely with her had no idea. Patton, who lived, you know, there in the house with her, did right. not realize that, you know, the finding the pills in on her bedside you know in the bottle on her bedside was the first information that anybody had and then the autopsy which um miss barbeau i can't remember her first name um mm-hmm. was actually the person who ordered the autopsy and who said you know very frankly that the uh the heart condition would not have killed her that it no. was in fact fentanyl and drug use, a combination of drug use, but that there was fentanyl in her system when she died. And fentanyl is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, incredibly dangerous. I was reminded, I don't think this is our take on this, but I think it's an interesting way to sort of talk about it, of a story that sort of circulated. I don't know if a story is the right word for it, an interpretation, if you will, of the death of Heath Ledger, which was also a drug overdose due to pharmaceuticals. God. Somebody what said- What happened to Heath Ledger is that he played the Joker and he was such a method actor that he got consumed by the darkness of the character and he was never able to get out again. And it's like, you know what? (laughs) I don't really think that's based in fact. That's really poetic. It's shifting the focus of the issue onto something that's not really the source and it's more theoretical and sounds complicated. Like. I, you know, I think are we dealing here with issues of people are either fundamentally wired for these sort of obsessive addictive tendencies or they're not. Like you were saying earlier, you're either wired to be the type of person who will go into your room for a week and do nothing but work on your novel or you're not. And if you are wired to be positively obsessed with potentially lucrative and spiritually nourishing endeavors, you have to also watch out for the fact that you may become addicted to fentanyl. That, you know, that there are two sides absolutely. to that coin. Yeah. It, and it is absolutely those two sides of the coin that are the, the you know, the light and the dark of it are at the, the core of who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I could become obsessed with, you pick, I, well, I think of the examples in your own life. I could become obsessed with literally anything. Some reorganization project in my house. My house is going to be alphabetized by the time we're finally freed from quarantine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I because I have become obsessed with it. Now, it's a positive, I guess, sort of take, but it can be um, in, in its own way destructive. Writing can go the same way. Three, four o'clock in the morning, I'm falling asleep and hitting my head on the monitor, nodding out, and I can't bring myself to stop or go to sleep because I need to, you know, get back up and do a little bit more because I thought of one more thing. 
Now, are when you feel when you're feeling that obsession with your writing, is the obsession with finishing, or is it that you just can't get out of the world? Well, I think it's probably a combination of both. I, I always say there's a certain point in any book when it is no longer safe for me to drive. And I know, I know it's probably nobody thinks it ever is a good idea for me to drive and I don't drive anymore at all. So none of us have to worry about it. But there was a point at which with any book where driving was no longer a good idea because I would start out driving fully present for the experience. And then, you know, three or four blocks from the house, I would be thinking through the next thing that I needed to write in the book and completely lost and arrive somewhere and think I have no recollection of driving to the grocery store, wherever it was I was going because I was lost in the book in my head the whole time that I was driving it. So there's that kind of component to it too. I just completely like I get mad at somebody and I need to tell them something and it's the middle of the night. And so there's nothing I can do. Like I, I, what I've, because I think it's probably a good idea not to do it or do anything about it. Um, my solution has been to write them a letter so that it can get out of my head and not, and then send I don't it. have to give the, and then uh, not give them the letter, Sorry, but it's the same sort ahead. of yeah. notion. Yeah. Uh, how do you affect the shift? How do you affect the shift from the negative obsession to the positive obsession because that's it seems like that's what we're saying it's saying if you have an obsessive personality just saying don't obsess is not going to work that's you that you have to literally turn the magnifying glass onto something else and it is that was the thing that i was addressing right at the top it's the getting started in the morning is the hardest part because all of the other little things are there Mm. all of the other little temptations and the little fingers and it it is just simply it is that that incredibly daunting thing of sit down in front of the blank page with a pen in your hand. And I think for me, the thing that works best is make the goal of very limited. I'm going to write for 30 minutes or 10 mm-hmm. minutes or 20 minutes. I'm going to write one page, you know, mm-hmm. something really limited. If I do more than that, it's fine. But that's all I have to do because all I really have to do is start. Mm-hmm. Once I've actually started, then, as I said, woe betide anybody who wants to interrupt me. Mm-hmm. You know, the phone rings and I start screaming profanity. About, Leave me alone. I don't know mm-hmm. if you do that, but I do you know, like, and I have no idea who's even calling in me and maybe a call I'm expecting or somebody I want to talk to. But my immediate response is don't interrupt me. I'm in the middle of of doing this. Sometimes Christopher will call and I'll say, hang on for a minute. And then I write for five more minutes and I so that I can get to the end, so that I can get like, to oh, the end of whatever yeah. it is. I know. And I, I always know what it is. I'm like, Oh yeah, he's got to finish that sentence. But I'm it's totally the starting it. of it. Once yeah. I've started, I'm in. And that takes, that is really in some, some cases force of will, but some of it is just, it's just about where I start. Mm-hmm. You know, if I get up and start on something else, it is very, the chances of me getting to what I need to do, writing or whatever it is that I need to do, are much more limited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is really hard to turn back once I have gotten started in just the same way that the writing is. So some of it's about getting in there and doing it. And if I have a really specific plan about I'm going to do this and this and this, and then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write 
right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my happy birthdays on Facebook. I'm going mm-hmm. to um, look at what's in the email and delete any emails that I don't want. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to begin writing. And then I open the, mm-hmm. the thing. I'm not even going to read emails. I'm just going to delete the emails you know that I don't want. Oh, that's a hard one. How do you do that? I end up reading. I always say that. And then I end up reading one of the emails. And then that's it. I'm shopping on Amazon for 20 minutes. Well, if, if, if it's like something from you about the show or something personal, mm-hmm. which is a pretty limited number. I can't put this um, fucking microphone stand together. Call me immediately. <laughs> right. Um, it, it, you know, I, that then I will, those I will typically read. Um, but most of them are the New York times and the LA times and NPR and variety magazine and, you know, a bunch of other things, most of which I just read the clickbait and then delete them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and don't bother with them at all. So, it is a very limited so that I'm putting off the prospect of actually delving in mm-hmm. like click on a Zillow or a red oh. and I'm gone for, and I'm gone for the day. Absolutely. That is 30 houses. To, we thought you might that, want to see. Yeah. The apps that I really had to be cautious with on my phone were the real estate apps. Most of oh the my gay guys I know are on grinder all the time. I'm on Zillow. <laughs> real estate porn. It is really seductive. It is really seductive. But I also like that the other aspect of, of this I wanted to talk about is what it means to be obsessed with something in isolation. You know, because that was another piece of the Michelle McNamara case. She was in that room alone. And I've never been the type of person who's like, I'm obsessed with Beanie Babies, so I'm going to a Beanie Baby convention. Most of the conferences I've gone to have been work-related. But I would love to be that person who can share his obsessions with other people. But unless there's a Sutro Tower t-shirt appreciation society I'm not aware of, whoa, that was hard to get out. That's a little tongue twister there for me anyway. Right. Um, You know, like, and I'm so envious of people who have communal obsessions. And I'm not talking about networked video gaming because I think that's isolating in its own way. I know a lot of a lot of people who are into that, they play video games with people all over the world, but it's like you haven't met most of them. You don't really know they if they're accurately representing yeah, themselves. Yeah, that's too catfishy for me. I don't yeah. think I could deal with that. That would be too weird for me. Yeah. But I, you know, I've always been, we've been having these conversations for years because as we always point out, we always live like most people are being forced to live now here in America, at least during the pandemic. So absolutely. We have to, I've been quarantined since uh, 1981. But when I reduced (laughs) my social media intake, it was like withdrawal from an addiction. It was truly like I was withdrawing from an addiction because there was so much voyeurism happening, but there was also so much emotional investment in transitory stuff that scrolled by. And when I stepped back from it, I realized how little impact it truly had on my life. Right. There's the needing to be connected to people that you actually have relationships with, that you that you actually love. And sure. being connected with people who want to talk about our work and what we're doing. That's great. I'm not shitting on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page by any means. Um, that it was the It was the... Going on there without any sort of deliberation just to see, you know, just to see. Let me, I'm just going to see what's going on. I'm going to go to the person's account who I know is always angry to see what they're angry about. And I'm going to get a little rush and decide it's ultimately me that they're angry about, even though we've never had a conversation. You know, things like that. <laughs> it becomes a form of dangerous self-obsession. And I think that's where it always gets dangerous is when the obsession becomes self-obsession. And that's something that you and I talk about a lot. I guess, but I have to think they're all kind of that. 
You think? Yeah. You know, I think it is really about self-obsession. I think it was in the end, you know, I, I think Michelle had to know. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that is a form of self-obsession. I have to know. I can't not know. It's like writing that angry letter to get it out of my head. She I wrote to. a letter, and that's one of the most powerful. It's part yes. of a letter to an old man. I, it's it how they so wrap the book up. It's the conclusion it, of the book. The reading of it in the documentary and the music, I rewatched it so many times. It was it was sort of like my an ending for my novel, my first Burning Girl novel, where it's just the woman saying, I'm going to get you. Like, you have brought so much fear to my life. The idea of you, right. your crimes, the legacy of you, I'm going to fucking get you. But yeah, it was an embodiment of what you're talking about. She had to know. Right. And, and that at, at some point that is becomes the obsession, right? I had to know. It's like the social media thing. I have to know what's going on. I have to whatever. And believing it, whether it's about me specifically or involves me or I have to know or it's going to be invaluable for me to know. I wasn't talking about buying three piece bistro sets for anybody else's balcony. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. You know? Like as I always say to people are right. Do you spend a lot of time tossing and turning, worrying about somebody besides yourself? <laughs> well, you know, I like, think parents we are do. concerned about others, and I think sometimes they do. But even I th- that's about that. And we don't have kids, which is lucky for us or the kids. I'm not sure, but I think parents will spend their time. But I think there's a definite sense that your children can feel like an extension of yourself. And some of that obsession can be, what am I going to have to do as a result of what my kid brings into my life? (laughs) I don't know. My, my impression of people who do have children is that maybe children are how you divorce yourself from that sort of obsessive thinking, because I I don't know how you would ever sleep if you had had a child. Like I, I couldn't imagine in the writing of say uncle, Sending a child to school, I I just can't imagine doing that. Like, just, I'm just going to put you on the bus and goodbye. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I still have trouble. I still worry about my youngest brother driving and he's over 50 years old. You know, like, (laughs) I I think or something like that. He's nearly, I, I, you know, but he's the baby in my head. So I think that parents have to become comfortable with letting it go. And so maybe, yeah. uh, maybe what's makes us so obsessive and jumpy. I mean, you're always saying to me, other people's children, because I'm, I worry about other people's children. If we see them out in public and they're too near the stairs or railing or oh, yeah. some hazard that I can see, it is all I can do not to grab other people's children and drag them back from the, the precipice, which I, grabbing other people's children is uh, not I'm a aware, good idea. Not, not a popular notion, but I do. It it drives me crazy. And other and parents are like, eh, they bounce. They're mostly made of rubber, and but yeah. they'll be fine. And it's an exercise in powerlessness for a lot of parents. But um, and I think that they master it. I think yeah. it is a it is the a place that you master that that powerlessness and getting past all of that worry and and obsession. Uh, I guess. So the final thought for this episode is: let's hear it for parents. Parents make the world go round, and thank Can God we imagine? are not parents. <laughs> right? <laughs> I try to imagine what it must have been like for my parents. Oh, my yours. God. Mine. Oh, mine. my God. Oh, my God. That's oh a subject God. for a, a whole nother podcast. But next week, we are bringing back True Crime TV Club. Yeah. 
if you're unfamiliar with True Crime TV Club, it is not a requirement that you watch the True Crime TV special that we will be breaking down and serving up for you. But if you would like to, if you'd like to read ahead like the good kids in school, we will be talking about, this is the first time we've covered this show. It's called Young, Hot, and Crooked. And the episode title <laughs> is Killer Looks. And it is season one, episode nine, and it is streamable on various platforms. And um, that's all we're going to say about it for now, except that the case involves porn, which is always it seems to be a focus <laughs> of one of the members of True Crime TV Club, which would be the one talking to you right now. Uh, until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.